Welcome to the Security in Color podcast. I'm your host, Dominique West, and each Tuesday, I will bring you the latest and greatest in cybersecurity news, tips, and career guidance. Let's see what's new for this week. Welcome to another episode of Security in Color, your weekly research for cyber and cloud security news and tips. I'm your girl, Dominique. Thank you for tuning in for another episode, and I'm back with more cyber-related news. I wanted to start the episode by wishing everyone safety and sanity, whether you are outside protesting or contributing towards the movement in other ways, such as donating, sharing links, anything to help fund, you know, frontline protesters, anything that you can. Um, I hope you are doing it safely, and I hope you are keeping your sanity and doing self-care it's really, really easy to feel helpless and even like a little loss about what to do. And I try to keep the mantra, you know, just do what you can when you can and like call it a day after that. <laughs> you know, we're, we're still in this weird pandemic where we're like, we can go outside, but we can't go outside. Some people can. You can. Is it safe? Is it not? And at this point, it's just, you know, since we're all at home, I personally, I felt like I've worked harder at home in these past, <clears throat> excuse me, couple of months than I have when I was going into an office. So I, it's like you have to actively try to take off, take care, take like speak to whoever and say, hey, you know, shit is getting real out here. Like it is rough. I even had to do that recently where I rolled off a project and I'm in the potential of possibly getting on another one. And I had to, you know, speak to my manager and I say, hey, you know, I've had a rough <laughs> couple of weeks, right? With family issues, with dealing with the pandemic and now dealing with like just social injustices and being bombarded with messages everywhere. Like everywhere I go, I just, I can't, I feel like I just cannot escape what is happening in the world without isolating myself, right? And and maybe that's just something I need to do. So I had to speak up and I had to say that. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm used to pushing through. I'm used to being like, you know what? Just get through these two, three tasks and then we'll get out of it on the other side. But I kind of do that every day, every day. And next thing you know, I am run down. Or none, like, I don't necessarily know if I feel burned out, but I do feel run down. So I had to, I had to speak up for myself and say, hey, you know, I need a couple of days. Whether or not I need to take that off personally, I don't know um, if your company does mental health days or, you know, how they're responding to what's happening um, in the nation right now. But definitely see if you can take some time off if you need it. I need it. I'm sure others need it. And, you know, we have to be able to speak up for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be running to the ground. And we don't, we don't want that. We don't need none of that. So I won't dwell on the issue because, you know, like I said, you, you really can't escape it. So we can jump into today's episode. Today, I will be discussing Zoom being at the center of another security controversy. Google is being hit with a $5 billion lawsuit and how the app signal is helping protesters and some tips for those of you looking for work in the world of cybersecurity. Let's jump into today's episode. Zoom, a company that by now we are all familiar and I'm sure a little tired of, is yet again in the controversial spotlight over their recent decision to only allow end-to-end encryption security for its paid users. Now, this isn't the first time they've been under fire. 
As Zoom grew in popularity to connect users during the beginning of the pandemic, security and privacy professionals called them out because they were using insecure protocols as their default settings. Now, end-to-end encryption is a security measure that ensures only you and the person you are communicating with can read what's sent, and nobody in between, even Zoom, can read and know what's going on. Now, it's a security feature that is available on apps like WhatsApp, and Zoom's reasoning for only allowing this feature for its paid members is because it's trying to juggle a balancing act meaning it's trying to balance the need for its users to be secure and private, but also allowing federal and state law enforcement to be able to effectively do their jobs if necessary. Playing the fence doesn't really bode well with most companies, as the subject of user privacy versus law enforcement is playing center stage more and more. An example of this was most recently seen as the FBI took Apple to court over the non-compliance to unlock an iPhone during a terrorist investigation. In this case with Zoom, the company is trying to mitigate an ongoing issue its users are facing, something you might have either experienced yourself or, or have seen, which is called Zoom bombing, which has plagued its users since the increase of popularity at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, Zoom bombing is when an uninvited guest kind of joins a call and causes disruption. And to combat this, Zoom allows a host to report the users so more information can be gathered for law enforcement to investigate if necessary. For example, when people join in and they might spew some hate speech or they might expose some children who are violated. And in that case, you know, law enforcement needs to come in to make sure it doesn't happen, right? A lot of our school system has been, well, not a lot of our school system, all of our school system has been pushed online. And with that, you know, a lot of teachers, especially if they're older, may not know how to implement security measures or how to do these things. So Zoom was trying to say it's trying to balance making sure investigators can come do what they need to do while also trying to keep as much of its users safe as possible. Now, the announcement drew major backlash, of course, from the security and privacy community who said extra security measures should be available to everyone, regardless of whether or not they can pay the starting price of $15 a month, because Zoom Pro is $15 a month in order for you to get this extra feature. And without this feature, those using Zoom Basic tier are susceptible to attacks and significant privacy issues. Now, it's important to note that all users currently have basic encryption measures, meaning your messages are encrypted and protected in transit. The difference between that and the upcoming extra end-to-end encryption is that the new feature encrypts your messages all the way through, meaning it's encrypted from your device, when you send your message, when it's routed through the servers, and it is only decrypted when it's at the destination user's device. And as privacy and security continues to take center stage, it will be very interesting to see if Zoom continues this balance and act. It seems like major tech companies are under fire left and right as Google takes another lawsuit hit. The state of California has filed a $5 billion class action lawsuit alleging that Google is still collecting data of users using incognito mode. 
Now, if you are a Google Chrome browser, you might be familiar with the incognito mode feature I'm talking about. This feature was made to allow users to be able to browse in a mode that is meant to keep their online activities private. Now, the lawsuit filed alleges that Google can still capture user data through the use of Google Analytics, Google Ad Manager, and other applications and website plugins, including your smartphone. It is not known how this data is being used, but, you know, one can guess they're pretty much collecting it for the same reason that all companies do, you know, to learn about your private browsing habits, especially because if you're using incognito mode, more than likely you're looking up things that, like, you didn't want Google to know about, you didn't want anyone to know about. So they want to know, of course, they want to know this stuff and probably use it for some kind of ad targeting or just to see, like, how their demographics are using. What are people looking up in their private homes where no one can see? And most users use this mode, you know, they're they're hiding very intimate and pretty potentially embarrassing searches and history. So, you know, Google maybe seeing this information could potentially damage its reputation as a safe browsing tool if this is true. Like if what they're alleging is valid and incognito mode hasn't been uh, hiding the information that we thought, this can be a major blow to Google. Now, the state of California stated that uh, Google cannot continue to engage in the covert and unauthorized data collection from virtually every American with a computer or phone. And according to a Google Chrome developer, uh, the state actually might be correct if they have this evidence because this is something that even he said that he's noticed. And uh, his name is Paul Irish. And he is a developer who used to work exactly on the Google Chrome browser team. And he stated that the incognito mode feature has always been a problem because a user's activity can be detected due to a mechanism in what's called their file system API. And it's something that was supposed to be addressed last year. And as of the last update of Chrome, which came out last week, if I'm not mistaken, the problem still exists. And because, you know, code is uh, pretty much reused at this point with other platforms. So, for example, this Chrome, Google Chrome, the code for Google Chrome is used on other browsers such as Edge and Opera, Vivaldi and Brave. So this means that the code vulnerability that exists in Google Chrome also exists in all of these other browsers. So if all these other people use them and they think they too are using, uh, you know, they're safe in incognito mode, now they realize that they're, not, <laughs> that they're not basically. And it just speaks to, you know, an issue that happens when other applications are built using already flawed code, code that isn't going through proper software development lifecycle, or who it is, right? Because it sounded like Google knew about this. They just haven't fixed it. And then now you need to answer, why haven't you fixed something like this? Now, ironically, Google came after Apple's Safari browser for a very similar issue in which the Safari browser, they identified in the Safari browser that there were a number of security flaws in their private browsing feature. Like they were coming for them saying, yo, 
You say you are here allowing users to be private, but they're not. Like, you need to be taken out and taken down. Because granted, you know, they're rivals. Just for Google now to come out, or just for the state of California to now come out and be like, yo, Google, you might want to slow your slow your roll because you too are out here violating all these security and privacy issues. So if you are interested in private browsing, you know, there's plenty of other browsers you can use. You don't always have to use the default ones. You can install another one and one that has been coming up that I've used before, but I don't currently have. Um, but I'm actually probably going to go and test it out and see how it works in comparison to others. But there's other actual like private browsing alternatives such as DuckDuckGo. And they've been taking advantage. I don't know if you maybe are on social media or if you've seen, but as soon as this lawsuit came out, DuckDuckGo came out on Twitter and was like, yo, you know, Google ain't out here doing the things that they do, but we do. You should come over here because, you know, they want to take advantage of competition. So DuckDuckGo is an alternative private browsing that I will be looking into. And you can check my social media. I'll probably post it on there as to whether or not it's a valid one that you can use in comparison to the really default popular ones that are out there. Or you can go test out your own. In a stance against the announcement about a potential increase of government and corporate surveillance, a new tool is soon to be available to protesters. The popular messaging app Signal is set to release a new feature that will enable users to blur their faces in photos they share. The release of this feature comes on the heels of an announcement by U.S. authorities who are attempting to increase their efforts to monitor protests following the police killing of George Floyd. The U.S. Department of Justice gave the DEA new authority to conduct covert surveillance of some protesters, immediately possibly putting the lives of thousands in danger. The details of how this surveillance will take place remains unclear. There's not a lot of information, but nevertheless, apps like Signal are taking a stance and doing something to protect the lives of protesters. Since the announcement of the new feature, the app has seen a surge in popularity, of course, as upwards of 100,000 people have downloaded. The application also said that his organization is looking for a manufacturer to make physical face coverings for demonstrators free of charge. So if you are a protester worried about further action taken against you, Signal is a great option for telecommunication services, and there are hopefully others that we can come up with and share on this podcast to help protesters who are afraid just in case something else might happen. A little different from our normal news segment, I wanted to include some helpful tips to those out on the market for cybersecurity jobs. We always, always, I mean like always hear about the 3.5 million job shortage in the cybersecurity industry, but not much else about how to actually get help on landing the job. And with the pandemic still underway, cybersecurity has been one of the industries actually least affected by the halt in movement. In fact, Garner, a leading platform uh, for ratings and reviews, you know, of enterprise technology solutions, they estimated that there was a 65% increase in demand for cybersecurity professionals. And what's even better about this is the fact that many companies are allowing or looking for fully remote positions because of the pandemic and the fact that, you know, not a lot of people 
are moving yet or we're not allowed to <laughs> move yet, basically. And that tends to be a barrier for most people who are looking for jobs because they either have to relocate or not many companies were willing to do like the fully remote. But now that everyone has been forced to go remote and whether or not they have to take a look at whether or not their project productivity has been affected and that you can effectively work at home without it, you know, affecting your bottom line. Now a whole bunch of new opportunities are opening up. So I wanted to begin by saying, or I, I wanted to give some tips on, on what you can do and I'll maybe sprinkle this in a little bit more um, down the line, but I just wanted to, I came across a really good article that was speaking about some tangible actions that you can take. And it was something that I thought of even when I I've, was trying to get into cybersecurity as a beginner, right? Because a lot of the jobs, and I'm about to speak to more of this in a second, but a lot of the jobs are asking for more senior level positions or higher level positions than I think they know what they're looking for. So a, a lot of the change needs to happen in the recruiting process, right? Like that's, that's a huge systematic issue <laughs> there, but I like a lot of it begins with recruiting for the cybersecurity professionals and, and, and the people in charge and the people who are writing the job descriptions and the kind of things they're asking for because the barrier to entry and job descriptions are really ridiculous. Like I've looked at entry level one to try to help people out and I'm like, yo, this shit's crazy of what they're asking for these days. And I, I personally remember how hard it was and how much I had to like finagle my own resume just to get a call back. Like I'd have to, um, any certifications that I was studying for, I added it to my resume. Anything that I thought I was doing, I was like, how can I turn me just changing the, um, what do you call it? Changing the color out of a printer. Like how can I change that into some tangible person? I was managing inventory of all printer resources. <laughs> like I had to, you know, finagle my words in order to get the job. And you know, companies that are willing to invest in supporting their teams for training should start removing a lot of the high requirements and certifications that they're asking for in order to open up the pool to find a qualified candidate. And, you know, changing recruiter process, that's a, that's a whole nother ballgame episode. I'm not going to do that. But what I will is help you figure out how you can secure the bag. So my first, t- m- m- my biggest tip, I should say, will be to understand cybersecurity literacy. Now, this will not only help you in a job, this will literally help you throughout your entire career. And I think there's a large notion, something that I even had thought of at the beginning when I first started my career, that you have, in order to be a like competent cybersecurity professional, you have to be an expert in everything. And let me be the first to tell you that that is bullshit. <laughs> like, do not think you need to know everything. Like as a fellow wannabe know-it-all, like it is impossible. It will drive you crazy and into the ground. And you'll be like, yo, is this job for me? Like, why do I need to know all these things? And it will it will drive you bash crazy. Let me, let me, let me just make that very clear. So I personally would categorize my knowledge like as very broad, but not deep, meaning I know a lot of different topics enough to speak about them like proficiently if I needed to do it for a job interview or a talk or, you know, some kind of engagement. But I'm not an expert on all of those things. I just have a minimum baseline 
for me to be able to speak on things. And then like if it was an interview, I would speak to it, you know, like tell them like, hey, if they ask me about a DDoS attack, right? And I'm new and I'm like, well, you know, I've done a lot of research and have seen a lot of news articles about DDoS attacks and how they're used against and how, you know, botnets are used to kind of um, do those attacks against companies. I personally have not had a job in which I see it against a company, but I can understand how they are weaponized against companies. And here's my research, like, to back that up. And I use my passion and my personality to kind of fill in the gaps there. Because <laughs> no one is looking for perfectionism. Like, they don't expect you to be perfect and know everything, but you should be able to recognize or piece together, like, some different cybersecurity aspects. I remember, for example, I had a technical interview in which it was a case study and I had to figure out the name of like the company's, we'll just say like internal ticketing system or something like that. And my first instinct was like, how the hell am I supposed to figure that out at a case study? Like I'm not even in your company. This ain't a hacking position. <laughs> like This is a cloud security job. I'm not a expert pen tester. Like, what do you, what, what are you asking me? But you know, I had some knowledge about pen testing, at least the methodology, and I knew something about like how to do reconnaissance and what tools you can use to do reconnaissance because of my schooling and just my own research when I was, you know, interested in in learning more about pen testing. So I did some research and I had Google, you know, I got to work and I was never able to figure out the internal, the name of the internal ticketing system. But I did figure out the name of like some of their other services that were exposed online and some other information that I put up in the case study that I wrote up. And that was enough. And I explained like, my thought process and how I wind up getting this information. And I didn't even acknowledge the fact that they asked me for the internal ticketing system. I gave them a whole bunch. I gave them everything else. <laughs> like I didn't even acknowledge that part, but it was enough. Right. And I explained and I, you know, I did it to get in the door and I got a call back and I wind up getting the job. And I, I, I say all this to say, you know, don't go crazy trying to be an expert in everything. Learn a little bit of everything. Like, um, and, 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 then you'll figure out what you like, right? So I figured out that I liked cloud security. So that's something I'm now deep diving to become an expert in. But all other stuff, I don't need to. I just need to know the basics. So that way, if an engagement comes up or someone asks me like, hey, are you familiar with such and such? I'd be like, yeah, I am. I can speak to it on a basic level. But if you need an expert, let me divert you to somebody <laughs> somebody else who is, right? So I really hope that helps you, especially if you're someone who's new. I, I always speak to a lot of people and they're like, They are really overwhelmed with just how to get started, the fact that there's so much information. And I think that's because everyone thinks I need to learn everything. Now, if you want to learn everything, that's your prerogative. By all means, you know, be a one-stop shop person. I'm real big on being a one-stop shop and knowing enough. But at the minimum, just get the basics. So, for example, like something I wind up telling my study group, I'm doing a security plus study group for um, some people. And I said, you know, go to the CompTIA website, look at the breakdown of domains of all of the terms and phrases that they expect you to know. And you don't need to deep dive and know every single, you don't need to know 100% about all of it, but you need to know enough of a basic definition or a basic understanding in order to be able to piece it together when the t- when it's time to take the test, right? When you answer, when you, um, when a question pops up, 
and you are trying to figure out how to answer it, if you look for keywords and you're like, okay, I know what DDoS means. I know what this means. I know what this tool is. And I can piece this together and figure out what the answer is. So hopefully that helps you with people who are trying to get in. Um, and even if you're still, if you've been in the field like that, still helps me to this day. So, you know, that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode. Please consider leaving a rating or comment in Apple Podcasts. And for more information, go to our website at www.securityincolor.com. Be sure to engage with me on social media or write me to be a part of future episodes. Take care.